G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. But just imagine for a moment, growing up in the home of a billionaire, living in a manor house, driving luxury cars, attending swanky events and staying at the best hotels. Well, our special guest today was Daddy's little girl living a life most only ever dream of. That is until she ventured to the other side, with a mission in mind, discovering the real tragedy on the dark street corners of prostitution and debauchery in England's most violent cities. And with that experience, she found herself swapping the ball gown for work boots. Angela Williams has sat at the House of Lords one moment, but in the next moment has walked the streets of red-light districts feeding and clothing women with no hope of a normal life. She's a woman who's discovered the value of rolling up her sleeves and getting stuck into what's really valuable. Angela Williams is the daughter of a British lord and from one of the wealthiest families in England. She tells her story in her first book, Extravagant Life to Extravagant Love. Angela, a special welcome along to 2020. It's a pleasure to be here. Angela, let me first of all ask you about the front cover of your new book and uh, just fabulous. There you are in your red ball gown and you're not wearing high heels. (laughs) No, that's a, the good thing about the cover is that the red dress is meant to kind of draw you in and then as your eyes move down the front cover you notice these work boots that are a little bit muddied and dirtied and, and that really is the true meaning of the of the book. You say you don't want to be known as just another rich chick. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> playing the good girl trying to save the world. Uh, let's get into some really sort of deeper things right at the start of our conversation because yep. some people will say, oh, here's someone who's just doing a, you know, there's an expression here in Australia, no doubt in England too, the do-gooder idea. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts about not being just another rich chick doing good things? Yeah, I think it's easy to assume that, you know, people that have more than enough in life, um, you know, they try to, it, it's all about image, it's all about first impressions and, and people can sometimes think that, if anyone's doing good, it's all about the impression as opposed to actually the heart connection to really why you want to help people. Um, and in particular, when you come from such a wealthy family, those expectations, those labels, if you like, I talk a lot about labeling um, in the book and it's a big theme throughout the book. Um, so those labelings are there when, you, when you're from a wealthy family. And so, yeah, I, I dive into that a little bit. Let's talk wealthy family for a moment uh, because your dad, Baron Robert Edmiston, uh, sat in the House of Lords, a billionaire motor trade entrepreneur who founded International Motors. And uh, he wasn't born into wealth himself, uh, a self-made man success-wise. Take us back to your family story here so we've got some context. Yeah, I mean, my dad uh, was born in India. He was one of these kids that used to play truant, told that he would never make anything of his life. 
Um, and what kind of changed for him is he got held back in school and he didn't like the fact that he was below everybody else. And that kind of kick-started him to, to want to succeed in life. And he just kept, just kept working, kept moving. And, uh, and he always had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit about him. But he really credits all of his success and all of his endeavors to the goodness of God. You know, it's a combination of him being obedient um, and the gifts that God's put on his life and the doors that God opened that he wasn't able to open for himself. Isn't it interesting uh, to reflect on a Bible verse uh, where we understand, as Jesus said, you know, it's harder for, or it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man yeah. to enter into the kingdom of God. And of course, uh, we need to interpret that right. But it's hard when you are rich uh, to recognize a richness to God, a faith in God. Absolutely. But what are your thoughts around your family's heritage that's been passed down to you, this faith heritage? Yeah, I mean, one of probably the key scriptures that as a family we, we have is um, to whom much is given, much is required. Um, and I think that has been, for us, we feel so blessed with so much that it's actually for a purpose. Um, so my, I know for my dad, he, he started the ministry Christian Vision, which is a global ministry to touch a billion souls with the gospel. And he's well on his way, almost at his target. It's been going for nearly 30 years. Um, and he has plowed so much of his resource into that mission. Um, and it, it really is being purposeful with all that God's given to us. And I think no matter what we've been given, we all need to be that is purposeful with what we've been given. And we'll touch on Christian Vision and the good work that Christian Vision does. And uh, people will know we're talking today uh, on Vision Christian Radio, But and there's no connection there uh, apart from a fact that we have the same sort of vision to reach out and, uh, and win the lost and disciple those souls. Uh, let's talk about being on the annual rich list because you grew up and each year, there would come out an annual rich list and your dad's name is on there uh, alongside names like Paul McCartney and Elton John and there's your dad's name. Yeah. Hey, you grew up in this environment where it wasn't just having everything you wanted but it was also the image that comes with being very rich. Yeah, I think we always tried to um, not put our lifestyle on display because we wanted always to be relatable to people. Obviously, um our Christian faith is the most prominent thing about us, and that's what we pursue. Uh, it was a funny thing, though. I mean, we used to um, live in a small little village in Ali, and it was before sort of social media and and um, the internet was was kind of so accessible to us that actually our little u no, local news agents used to get that publication first, and they would know where my dad was featured in that and. And so we used to go into the the news agents, and they would tell us our news before you know before we knew about it. And so um, that was kind of the area where I really began to see that you know people were taking an interest in our life uh, for these area in this area. And so um, uh, we would always try and not put our lifestyle on display like that. So. Uh, but you had friends and uh, you were at school and people knew that you came from this rich family. Yeah. How did they relate to you in any sort of different way that you might anticipate? Um, it was really all about me. I, I tried to be relatable because our lifestyle, 
as much as we tried to kind of downplay it, you know, I was chauffeured. I talk about it in the book. I was chauffeured driven to school. And, you know, sometimes we arrived by helicopter and some of these bizarre things. Um, so it's really difficult to kind of hide those events in your life. But for me, it was always about being really intentional about being as best I could to be down to earth, to be able to relate and connect with people on their level um, because they always saw you as unapproachable and uh, and and almost separated you from their life because you're thinking they're thinking, well, she's not going to be able to relate to us at all. And so I'd get excluded from things. Yeah, and you say when you're raised in a evangelical Christian home, and some of those lifestyle of the rich and famous type things, your parents are trying to shelter you, I guess, from some of those. And you say in your book that you were never really one of those rich brats, but you were the queen of tantrums from time (laughs) to time. Oh, yes, I liked having a tantrum probably up to the age of four, and I was very good at it. I was quite professional, but yes. And your family, your siblings, you were known as the millionaire's kids. Yes, as I said, in the local village, that it was. we used to go into the corner shop there and they just you'd hear the whispers of the villagers saying, oh, they're the millionaire's kids. And, um, and so it's kind of living with that being visible, trying to be invisible, but you're, you're visible. Um, and it was just living with that balance. There's this uh, difference, and sometimes people talk about a growing gap between the rich and the poor, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. And sometimes people have this image of people in the aristocracy as turning a blind eye to poverty. This was clearly not your family's way of thinking about things, but yeah. was that something that was fairly typical because people who were very rich often don't have to mix with the great unwashed? Yeah, no, but I think this is something that I actually address in the book because I think there is an assumption that people with wealth, that that's all they're concerned about is materialism, gaining more wealth, showing it off. And that is really a stereotype that is upon the wealthy. And this is where I found that stereotype was really frustrating for me as I was growing up because it actually doesn't represent who I am, doesn't represent our family at all. And it doesn't matter how much you try to um, do the opposite. It, it That's just what you get labelled. And so it's really difficult to break that. And I think my journey was to be really, really intentional to say, hey, yes, we do have a lot, but we're also going to do a lot with it. And we're going to cross that boundary between the rich and the poor Um and be really intentional about reaching the people that need it the most. And your dad started doing some very good things and uh, using his wealth to create opportunity for the gospel and for discipleship. He wants to reach out, wants to reach a billion people. For you, as your father's daughter, somehow or other you've got to find your own way in all of that. And there must have been some times where there were some turning points when you started to think, What am I going to be doing to make a difference in people's lives? Is there a turning point experience you had? Um, Yeah, I mean, I I always had that responsibility, that sense that God was going to ask something of me that was significant and that he was going to ask something of me that was a challenge. Um, And I began to just explore what is that about? What does that look like? 
Um, and I really had a heart for women and just didn't really know where that was going to lead me. So I just started knocking on a few doors, eventually led to us discovering an organization in Manchester City, which was about sort of three hours north from where I lived from Coventry. Um, and they just did an outreach program in the red light area there. And they said, why don't you just come and see what we do and um, just get some experience? So I, I took them up on the offer, not really thinking about what I was actually going to experience. I was just like, you know, enthusiastic. And and I went up there and um, it's actually the book. My book starts off in this scene of a tunnel where a taxi driver just kind of takes, we give we have an address and the taxi driver looks at it and says, is this really the address that you're going to? He looks at me and thinks, you, how are you? Why is it you're going to this address? He stops before this tunnel and says, I can't take you any further, but you need to be at the other side of that tunnel. And so I was with the two other women and we just, we stopped and we looked down this tunnel and it's, it's kind of very um, symbolic really of the moment I left my comfortable life and I walked through this tunnel and on the other side of that was the red light area um, where we met Peter, our guide, and, and he gave me my first experience of a red light um, area and it was quite a life transforming experience. So eye opening yeah. and things that you might have read about in a book or in fact you might have and I know you draw some attention uh, to the movie Pretty Woman and the distortion uh, that comes in the movie that starred Julia Roberts that glamorized prostitution yeah. and you've discovered that the real stories of women on the streets is nothing like Pretty Woman. Absolutely. I mean, that was, to me, my only reference point. I'd watched that movie. Um, I didn't really have an understanding. I thought the girls were going to be sort of really well-dressed, well-groomed, hair all nice and that. But really the opposite reality is, is what I saw um, because, you know, they're, they're not there because they get a thrill out of it they're there because actually they're in a desperate and dire situation and they're very you know 99 percent of them are extremely addicted to drugs it's like a thousand dollar or a thousand pound a week habit that they have and all sense of dignity and self-worth is has gone so they find themselves in this place and it's it's a devastating thing to see we're going to talk some more about love and how you get passionate about being a help and support and even a lifeline to some of these women. In your book, you say love has become distorted. Instead of changing our shape to accommodate love, we tend to change our love to accommodate shape. And you bring a beautiful uh, clarity with your reflection on First Corinthians chapter 13 and what mm. love really looks like. Mm. How do you describe your ability to love these women, even though they don't come from the same sort of uh, background that you do? Yeah, I mean, we have to find ways to love, don't we? And sometimes that is a challenge. Sometimes it takes sacrifice. Sometimes it takes overcoming um, things that have hurt us, um, putting down prejudice and and not jumping to conclusions or making assumptions. And so for me, actually, I learned a lot about myself when I, w I went into the red light area. I learned about my preconceived notions that actually they shattered within the first introduction. Um, you know, I'd assumed that they just choose to be there. This was a lifestyle choice. It's absolutely not a lifestyle choice. Um, and so some of those 
sort of labeling and prejudice within me was actually came into to be challenged um and what i found interesting was that you know i fe- i felt labeled throughout my life as you said the millionaire's kid the rich kid label i talk about quite a lot in the book and those labels kind of separated me from society a little bit uh And the same was true for them, that they get labeled, you know, prostitutes and that they're not worth um, normal life. And why do you want to look after them? They choose this lifestyle. And there's lots of labeling around them that separates them from society. And I use that experience for me to actually be able to connect with them. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Wonderful to have you along with us. Uh, We will open our talkback line, and if you do uh, want to make a contribution to our conversation, you might have a question or a comment. 1-800-316-316. Our special guest is Angela Williams. Angela is the daughter of a British lord and from one of the wealthiest families in England. She's told her story in a book called Extravagant Life to Extravagant Love. And Angela has a particular passion for working with prostitutes on the streets and uh, part of a ministry that operates on the streets of uh, cities in England. Angela, let's talk about some of the women that you've come across over the years because no doubt they'd be fairly doubtful about your motives in your making contact or they'd see you as somehow uh, like a cash cow ready to come and somehow rather bail them out of a, a desperate situation. How have those stories impacted you? Oh, significantly. I think each life that I, uh, each woman that I came in contact with my motivation was to help them, but in lots of ways they helped me because they helped me put my life into perspective. They didn't actually know anything about my background. So it for me, it was a place where I really discovered myself because I discovered myself without the labeling, without expectations on me, and they just accepted me as Angela. And so it was a really beautiful exchange for me and, and, and one that I hadn't really experienced before. And so I really did discover myself on the streets. So that was actually uh, a a very freeing thing to arrive on the streets out of your usual lifestyle without a label that says, I'm rich, I'm one of the millionaire's kids. And just to be one-on-one with women who are doing it tough. Yeah. And it was a situation where really it was all about them. And it was all about their life and trying to help them to choose a different lifestyle. Um, And so initially when we first, because just the first time I went out on my own, I took food and drink in the back of the car and I just drove into the red light area, me and a friend. Um, And we stopped to the women to try and offer them some food and drink. And they were very suspicious of us at first and they didn't want to come anywhere near Um, And we were finding it really difficult to kind of just make that first introduction and we were going week after week and nothing. Eventually, we had already been volunteering at a different organization that was working with these women in in a different area. So we invited one of those women, why don't you come on outreach with us? And she was known by all the other girls. So she came with us in the car and as soon as we got out of the car, she would introduce us. This is Angela and Maxine. She'd say, why don't you come and have a drink? And it totally broke the ice for us. So getting her endorsement actually really, really helped. And then that just set us on our way. 
Having a go-between is very important for the introduction, but no doubt you weren't wearing the ball gown on the streets. How did you, adru- uh, how did you adjust the way you were uh, dressing and relating? Was that an important thing you had to learn? Not really. I mean, the ball gown is, is really just much of a disguise. It's not who we really are. You know, I, I shop in all the normal high street stores that everyone else shops in and you probably wouldn't be able to tell me from, from other people, particularly in that time in my life, um, you know, it, dressing unobspic- what's the word, unobspicuously? Conspicuously. <laughs> Conspicuously, <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't, it was just a normal part of my life, so it didn't feel any different. And you felt particularly unqualified to be on the streets and doing something which really you were you were finding your way. Yeah. What do you feel about how qualified you need to be to be able to actually start doing what you were doing? Um, well, I was unqualified and because of you know my faith and my Christian walk and my belief in God, actually that made me more qualified because in our weakness he is strong. And so the gap between my ability um, enabled God's ability to take over. In a professional world, they'd probably tell you you would need to have understanding of drugs and alcohol addiction. You'd probably need to have some kind of um, psychological training. uh, And there would be various maybe social work, all those different sort of qualifications you would need. But I didn't have any of them. Um, And God used me significantly despite them. So. As you tell the story of arriving on the streets, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend of mine who started a homeless people's ministry. And I said, well, you know, how do you start getting involved in homeless people's ministry? He said, well, Neil, you get your esky, (laughs) uh, your cooler box. I'm not sure what you call it in the UK. And he said, you put some drinks and you put some food in there and you put that in the boot of the car and you turn up on the street and you open the boot and you look for someone to give it to. That doesn't sound like it needs a lot of qualification. Uh, That's actually sounding like anything that any of us could do. Absolutely. That's exactly how I started. And it didn't, you know, you didn't need to have great resources to be able to do that. But it takes some level of commitment to keep doing that. Uh, It wasn't just an experiment for you because something must have, uh, you know, caught your imagination to the point where you said, this is something I can really roll up my sleeves and get involved in. So it wasn't just a one-off. You really took the opportunity then to pursue that and to be committed to it. Absolutely. I mean, you have to commit to that journey and you have to, you know, these uh, these girls have, have got trust issues. They've had a lot of people let them down in their lives and you don't want to be one of them. So you have to deliver everything that you promise. And if you say you're going to be there at a certain time on a certain day, you've got to be there come rain, snow, hail or shine. There was a lot of rain and snow. I'm in England. <laughs> and and it's not just uh, having a good thought and thinking you'll do a good deed. There's a difference here. And you put this down to recognising something of the call of God that helps you be committed to what you're doing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, for me, the call of, the call of God was played a significant part in me going there because... It's a, it took a lot of courage and bravery to face a world that I was unfamiliar with, a world that is dangerous, a world that there's so many unknowns and unexpected things happen. We experienced murders and women suddenly disappearing. There was lots of violence and crime on the streets. And so in, in an f- arena like that, you're so dependent on God, you're so dependent on faith, and you have to know that he's actually called you to be there. 
And as unqualified as I felt and inadequate for the job, it was the fact that I knew that God had told me to go. That yeah. Well, news is coming up uh, just a couple of minutes away. Your book is so new that it was launched just yesterday on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. It's called Extravagant Life to Extravagant Love. How did the launch go? It went wonderful, beyond my expectations. Um, Yeah, everything I hoped it would be. And I heard that at the end of the meeting, you were uh, there with your book, doing some book signings for those who were invited, and you surprised everybody by coming out in the red ball gown that you were photographed on the front of your book. Yes, and the funny thing is actually on the picture of that book, um, the, the dress when I took that photo, it didn't actually fit me. I'd ordered it overseas. It was during the COVID period where you can't try anything on. You just have to take the chance. It came and it was too small for me. So we had these ties at the back of the dress. But um, thankfully, I've been on a bit of a health kick lately and I was able to zip it up. So I was excited about that too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I spoke to someone who was there at the launch and I asked the specific question after I heard you'd come out in the red ball gown. I said, was she wearing high heels or work boots? I was wearing my work boots. You were. (laughs) (laughs) You just couldn't see them under the dress. That was (laughs) all. Okay. Well, uh, Angela Williams is our guest. And if you're just joining the conversation, Angela is the daughter of a British lord and from one of the wealthiest families in England. And in her book, she tells the story, Extravagant Life to Extravagant Love, in the ministry that she has adopted and worked hard in to be able to reach out to those who are working and living in prostitution in some of the toughest places in England. Angela, to pick up on something that I noted from your book, uh, you talk about love and the way the world sees love in contrast to the way we think about love as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And you talk about love being a transaction and nothing perhaps is more clear than that when you're talking about a prostitution transaction on the streets. What are your thoughts about the transaction that people think of as love? Yeah, I think um, uh, for me, I had a a wonderful relationship with my father and I was able to experience a father's love. I was able to then transfer that into my relationship with my heavenly father. And so I had a good, healthy image of love. And then the moment I took that into the red light areas, I realized that the world viewed love in a very different way Um, and in particular in that area um, I I could see that it was more of a transactional experience that they didn't actually really understand what love was. Um, To give you one example um, there's a story I talk about in the book of we did a house makeover for one of the girls she was probably the one that intimidated all the other women more than anyone and she'd done a lot of time in prison and 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 lived a life um of crime and and you know was quite intimidating but we did this house makeover for her and most people said she didn't deserve it why would we choose her well she was the perfect candidate because this is what extravagant love is it's actually going across all those boundaries all the reasons why we shouldn't do something and says yes but god still loves you despite all of those things so we did this extravagant display Uh, for her and it actually really changed her and she just was the most beautiful person behind this kind of intimidating exterior she was actually a really lovely woman and I could tell one day she just wanted to thank me and 
I knew she just didn't know how to do it. She didn't know how to express what she was feeling. And it was a feeling I could tell it was new to her. She didn't know how to put words to it. So she simply slipped her hand in my back pocket. Now, obviously, that's quite an intimate um, thing to do, an expression to do. And so, but I didn't receive it in that way. I knew that this is her interpretation of what love means to her. It's a physical act in her mind. Um, so it's distorted. So I removed the hat and I just said, uh, it's okay that I know that you're thankful um, and you're loved and you're worth it. And the message there is not just to this woman yeah. uh, who's receiving an act of love uh, without any expectation of some special return on that. Mm. Uh, but the message goes more broadly uh, that says, even though we feel as though she may not have deserved that act of love, there's an illustration there of the way God's love is given to us. Absolutely. And I've lived in a life where I don't deserve it. I don't deserve um, the lifestyle that God's blessed us with. I don't deserve the affluence that we've been privileged to have. Um, and so I take that with me and uh, and to the same extravagance that I've received is the same extravagance that I want to give and, and show on others in, the, in, in love because that's who Jesus is. We are taking calls. Your opportunity to participate in our conversation today, 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Paula is in Maroochydore in Queensland. Hello, Paula. Welcome along. Hello. How are you? Good. Paula, what are your thoughts? Um, I'd like to ask Angela a question. If you're a positive person and you like to be positive all the time, then you have wealth behind you. How? Do you know when somebody is genuine or trying to take you for a ride? I, I don't understand how somebody is able to do that. Uh, good question, Paula. Your, your thoughts, Angela? Yeah, I think you begin to learn um, just some of the signs of um, people that you know may, might not have the right motives towards you. It comes through trial and error. It comes through pain. It comes through, you know... Um, learning when you've got it wrong. Um, but I think even despite that, I, I have an expectation that there is going to be a number of people that perhaps don't always have the right motives in wanting to get close or wanting to um, kind of connect with you. Um, but I accept that that is a part of my life and I choose to love anyway and I choose to love them despite that. Um, because I haven't come from their circumstances. I haven't come from their life, so I can't make a judgment on them um, as to, you know, as to why that might be the case. I'm, all, all I'm called to do is love them despite it. Thank you so much, Paula, for your, uh, for your call. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. This is an interesting one that churches often deal with if they have a welfare program because sometimes there are people who want to exploit the opportunity. Mm. And as you say, you even get a little bit streetwise uh, coming from your background, knowing that some will be exploitative, some will be there just for a handout, some people will be saying, though, uh, how do you actually uh, handle that when you say, I'm going to be extravagant anyway? I'm going to, even though some people might be there to exploit an opportunity, I'm still going to love. Other times, of course, people are going to be in real need and receive that. But, mm -hmm. but some people have a problem with that exploitation bit. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, 
When I was running the charity Embrace, we used to have like open shelves and we had all our food supplies on the shelves and the girls would come into the office and the facility and the amount of times they looted the shelves and I'd come back in and the the shelves had been cleared. And people used to say to me, well, why do you keep allowing that to happen? And I'd say, because of the 10 women that do that, one turns around and thanks me. And to me, that's progress. And so... Sometimes you have to um, go beyond the boundaries of because we can put those boundaries up. We can say, oh, you know, that they're taking advantage of us and you're never actually going to reach that person because those boundaries go up. You've got to be wise. Uh, You've got to know, obviously, how far you can go in a relationship or a connection with somebody. And I think, you know, handling money and stewarding money is incredibly important. It's biblical My dad is a wonderful example of how to do that. And I take a lot of wisdom and guidance from him. But love goes beyond that. It doesn't necessarily mean the pockets get released, but love goes beyond all those boundaries. Let's come back to a father's love. Uh, You started to share just the first part of our conversation today about your own father's love for you. And that illustrates the love of God towards his children. And uh, you've found that on the streets, when you've got women who are working in prostitution and exploited and uh, sometimes addicted to drugs, that sometimes they've missed what you have gleaned in your own relationship with your own father and have felt as though that there is a search for a father's love on the street. Oh, absolutely. Um we often think it's really difficult to reach these women because they're unreachable or they're in an, an area that, you know, perhaps we don't want to go. Um, but it's like a drop of water in, in a desert. It just gets absorbed so quickly because it, they're so des- desolate of it. And so when the moment you show a little bit of love in that, it's actually received really well. Um because they just they just don't have it and they just have never experienced that before. So they actually recognize it straight away because it's different. You've got some connections here in Australia and while the ministry that you were supporting in the UK is not operating in Australia, there are some people here in Australia and I uh, can say Bronwyn Healy is uh, no doubt one of your uh, connections mm-hmm. there. There are people who are working with prostitutes on the street here in Australia. Uh, are you planning any you know, extra foray into helping out here in Australia as well? Um. Yes, I do know Bronwyn. We're actually very good friends. Um, and I knew of Bronwyn when I was back in England and her story actually brought great hope to me. Um, and I have been involved in just some of the work that she's done at the Hope Foundation previously. But I'm actually in a, a new season now. My son has just graduated and he's he's in university and I find myself ready to put my hand on the plough again. And I'm just exploring what that looks like. But Um, My focus really now is about extravagant love and it's about empowering other people and um, reigniting it for me too is to actually make it visible what extravagant love looks like, what actually being a follower of Christ looks like. And, you know, I think we have um, a lot of bad news in the world. We've got a lot of things that can um, make us feel that this world is a terrible place and you know, we don't want to, we don't want to see all of that. But actually, it's time for us to really put the spotlight on. This is what extravagant love looks like, and people are doing good deeds. People are serving their community. They are reaching out to people. and And my focus now is let's make let's make kindness famous. 
let's yeah let's make extravagant love um, visible so that we can see this world is a good place and that God is at work. Do you think that sometimes we're so introverted uh, that we're always looking at our own lives, our own challenges, our own problems, uh, that we become distracted from doing something which is extravagant towards people who are really in desperate need? Now, I know that we're all on a learning curve and you've, you know, had to go through your own battles, uh, you know, with your parents' separation and divorce. And that was a while ago now. But, you know, you've had some challenges raising your own son who has some special needs. There's some some really big things that we all go through. Uh, we can't allow that to distract us from what we're called to do. How do you reflect on those things? Yeah, I think, you know, just because we have um, resources and we have wealth, it doesn't mean that normal life doesn't hit us either. Um, We have the same challenges that I talk a lot in there about my husband was an alcoholic um, and having to walk that journey. Um, But I think when God calls us, he calls us in whatever season we're in. And so actually we find, I found that the more I focus on me and my life, yes, my life can be enjoyed but it doesn't make it fulfilled. Um, And so I think actually pursuing a life of purpose over pleasure is by far uh, brings greater fulfillment in your life. And so I would encourage anybody that, you know, even if you are in that season where you just feel like life is getting on on top of you is to, um, you know, start to make plans. And it could just be a simple thing like reaching out to your neighbor. And as you give out to the world, it starts giving back to you. And, of course, in your local church, there are all sorts of opportunities that usually eventuate. Uh, eventuate. And this idea of uh, rolling up your sleeves, uh, I guess commitment to that starts with just simply getting involved in one small action. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be making boxes for um, children overseas at Christmas time or, you know, putting a food hamper together. And I know a lot of, you know, there's a lot of good people doing a lot of things like this already. And and I'm sure we'd all say that actually doing good deeds for others really does do something for ourselves in return. There's a reminder to each of us that when we capture something of the true heart of Jesus in all of this, that he is the one who empowers. So where does faith fit for you in the pursuit of, going to the next level. Uh, you know, you're saying that, you know, some of those things are now uh, times that are still functioning, but you're moving into some new levels here. Mm. The true heart of Jesus you talk about in your book, how does that motivate us onto a new level? Well, I think faith comes into play when he's called you to something that is beyond you. And I think whenever God calls you, he always calls you to something that is actually a big stretch and something that isn't within your capability to achieve. And that's why we need God and that's why we need faith. Um, And so for me, I think he's always pushing us on and he's always pushing us to the next level. And and what he's calling me to in the next season, again, is going to be a big stretch for me. and I'm I'm open to it, you know. I'm 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 ready to to take that next leap, and that's still formulating. I you know I can feel God stirring within me again um, that it's time to put my hand on the plow again, put my work boots back on, um, and it's going to be something that is beyond what I'm capable of doing right now. But God is God, and I've got the faith for it. 
I know some will uh, really identify with your story in the fact that you, as we were saying, sitting at the House of Lords one moment, next moment on the streets of some of the toughest places, violent places, uh, debauchery happening in these places, and and you've seen something which you've decided to take action for. The idea of seeing like Jesus, recognising the people who are on the fringes and recognising the ones that really need help. Is this part of the heart of the Christian believer that we actually do see a different dimension that some are trying to avoid? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is this is a representation of Jesus. He was all about the people on the fringes. He was all all about the people that were, were poor and destitute and, you know, living in, in sin that, des- you know, deserved to be stoned. Um, they were the people that he went for. They were the people that he hung around with. He didn't hang around in the synagogues all day, you know. Um, and I think it has to be a fundamental part of the Christian message. It has to be a fundamental part of who we are as Christians. And so... Uh, if we're not going to go, who's going to go? Angela, your book is fabulous. Extravagant life to extravagant love. Did you write this for rich people to be inspired or for the poor people to be inspired? For both. <laughs> yeah, I think if you have a fascination with what it's like to be the daughter of a billionaire, read it. If you have a fascination to know what it's like to be living on the streets, read it. Um and so it's going to help which I want to cross the bridge between the rich and poor and it's it's applicable for both. Now, your mum and dad are both still alive. Yeah. That may not be the case forever. And are you about to, in some time into the future, inherit the family empire? Uh, nobody knows the, the uh, you know, what the future holds, but undoubtedly, you know, that that will be part of my future at some point. Will you have to then be across the business as much as your dad was into all sorts of ministry and outreach opportunities and really you you know you're doing uh, multiple dimensions of how your life might look into the future uh, is that something you think about oh absolutely i carry a tremendous um weight of the responsibility the, the the mantle and the calling that's on my dad's life i feel it does pass down to generations uh, and to me, that is the greater inheritance, even than the wealth, is the fact that what God's put on his life, I carry a responsibility of that too. And no doubt the book is going to open all sorts of opportunities for you to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps at this moment, maybe in Zoom meetings, but uh, <laughs> no doubt when borders open and opportunities arise, uh, not only here nationally, but internationally as well. You'll be uh, looking forward to jumping on a plane and heading back home at some time soon. But uh, there are going to be opportunities. Uh, Are you available for speaking engagements? Absolutely, yes. I've done quite a bit of speaking over the years, so um, it's always a pleasure whenever I get an invitation. And if you're describing your book, and uh, the most important thing that people will uh, will capture when they read it, how do you think about that? Um. Yeah, there's a, a couple of things. One is that, uh, you know, true riches are really not found in how extravagantly you live, but in how extravagantly you love. And love really is the only thing that we can have control over in our life. And this rolling up of sleeves starts with little things. 
And before you know it, when there is a call of God, it Mm. takes you into the deeper waters. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the last there's three sections to the book. The last part really is a call to action. It's it's reflecting my life lessons and and um, for you to reflect on it personally. And my hope and desire is that it actually activates you to get the courage to follow the call of God on your life, to even if you feel inadequate, even if you feel that you're not ready, uh, it's time that we actually rise up as to who God's called us to be and get the courage to, to, to go. Well, the book is called Extravagant Life to Extravagant Love. It's the first book of Angela Williams, and there's some more coming into the future, no doubt. Yes. Uh, Angela is the daughter of a British lord from one of the wealthiest families in England. I didn't even get into all sorts of detail about how you got to be here in Australia, mm. but Australia is home for you now. Yes. And uh, for listeners, uh, let me encourage you, get a hold of Angela's book. It's called Extravagant Life to Extravagant Love. You'll be able to get it at Vision Christian Store. Just go to vision.org.au and you'll be able to access it there. But you can also connect directly to Angela. AngelaWilliams.com.au Yesterday was the launch of the book and there is a live stream uh, recording of that launch uh, that will be available at Angela's website, AngelaWilliams.com.au You're also able to follow Angela on social media, Angela Dawn Williams. Extravagant Life to Extravagant Love. It's published by Star Label Publishing. Launch was yesterday. It's also available on Amazon. It's in soft and hard covers and also as an audio book. Angela Williams, it's just been a pleasure hearing your thoughts and hearing your heart over this past hour. Thank you so much for taking some time to share those with listeners today on 2020. Yes, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 